A very thin man goes into a car dealership and is looking at cars. The salesman comes up to him and asks the very thin man what type of car he is looking for. The thin man, whose face is very gaunt, asks about a mid-sized sedan that has received high praise for safety. The salesman rattles off the specs of the car, and the thin man asks, Cargo space? Oh, hey, look! It's Santa Claus! Oh, come on, I didn't get to finish the joke. Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Cracking Cryptids and Curios. This is once again Matt, joined by our beloved man of 1,000 hobbies, Angel. In our time off from Season 1, I learned, Angel, that you delved deep into your hobbies of yesteryear in an attempt to ignite that old flame known as nostalgia. So, Angel, I need the deets. Tell me about this interest that you have of inserting Brandon Fraser characters from various movies into epic poems. So for instance, for our listeners that don't quite understand this fascinating thing that you do, you retooled the poem Beowulf with Brendan Fraser's character Link from Encino Man. How did that go? It went about as well as you could think. <laughs> I just changed all instances of Beowulf to Link. <laughs> So it was just changed from a uh, this epic hero to a caveman lost in time. <laughs> yeah, I just remove I just removed some articles and prepositions to make the language seem more cavemany, but that's pretty much it. How long did that take? Uh, about an hour. <laughs> wow, you got through that fast. I mean, I've perfected this art. <laughs> I know. You know what? Uh, what are some of the other ones you've done? Dante's Inferno. With who? With uh, um, Brendan Fraser's character in Mummy. <laughs> I don't remember his name. <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on! If you can't remember his name, like, what, what, what good are you? You know, it's I just, know. it's simple. I mean, he, he was like a professor, you know, like a like an Indiana Jones type. Yep. You know what I mean? I can just imagine him going through the eight layers of hell. Or was, you know, many Rick, Rick, man. How can you forget Rick O'Connell? Rick, yes. Rick O'Connell, yep. <laughs> and there were three of them, and I saw all of them. <laughs> so I'm, I'm interested to hear about the next one that you do. Um, it's a, a very intriguing hobby that you have, and gosh, it really delves into those epic poems, too. I don't want to give too much away, but let me just say two words. Paradise Lost. So going back to the Beowulf part, though, did like did you splice in any of the other characters for that one, like Polly Shore's character, and like Beowulf and him are just wheezing the juice? I normally I don't, but for this one I did make an exception. I made Grendel be Polly Shore. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Grendel's wheezing the juice! Wow. Man. Yeah, because because he needed to die. <laughs> oh, these these are uh, like parody movies that need to be made. I think that, that could make a lot of money. Yeah. Rather than like like um, doing a true like reboot or a sequel, just put the same characters in a completely different property and act like it's normal. I think there's <laughs> money to be made in that market. That's not a bad mm. idea. 
So with that being said, Angel, why don't we jump into a few news items for this week now that we're getting right back into season two. So we have today a, uh, an article from unexplainedmysteries.com and it is entitled Box from Aleister Crowley's House is Opened. And I think way back on the uh, Goatman episode, I had mentioned Aleister Crowley in passing, um, a man steeped in uh, occult folklore and, and the such. He goes way back. So the, the article goes on that it says, A mysterious box allegedly found beneath the floor of Bolskin House has been opened on camera. Situated near foyers at the southeast side of Loch Ness, Scotland, uh, Bolskin House was built in the 18th century in an area with a long history of peculiar happenings. Alistair Crowley, a man who was once regarded as the wickedest man in the world, lived at the house between 1899 and 1933 and was said to have used it to conduct black magic rituals. The building, which was badly damaged by two fires, was recently purchased by a group of investors who set up the Bolskin House Foundation in the hope of restoring it to its former glory. More recently, Rick Spencer, a 41-year-old from Grimsby, won an auction for a mysterious wooden box that was allegedly unearthed beneath the floorboards of the house after the fire in 2015. Having surrounded the box with a circle of salt due to its black magic connections, Spencer gingerly cracked open the lid to reveal a number of items, including a doll, some coins, and a pencil sketch. According to Spencer, the box could, ha could be what is known as a Dybbuk box, which is a wine box haunted by a Dybbuk, a malicious, restless spirit that can haunt and even possess the living. He is now appealing to anyone who knows something about the box or its owner to come forward. And there is a video attached that will have this article on our uh, podcast page so you can uh, view the, the video. But the first thing that completely jumped out at me here, Angel, is so the drawing that's attached to it. Um, it's a, a sketch. has a, The name looks like Gaul Devor, the demon's name, apparently. And, uh, I mean, if you look at the poster for the... A Hollywood blockbuster, absolute blockbuster. Everyone knows about this movie. The movie Sinister. I mean, they could have easily traced it, traced the poster <laughs> and just put this guy's face right in the front and center. And to make matters worse, it, it looks like a middle school project for history class. They burned the edges <laughs> of the paper, uh, cut it so the paper looks a little bit worn. What's your impressions on this? Oh, an unbiased opinion. I've not seen the movie Sinister. Uh, looking at the How, movie, how's that possible? <laughs> Everyone's seen Sinister. I'm too busy, you know. I'm too busy, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, looking at the movie poster and then looking at the the drawing in in the video, it it is uncanny. Like if if again, not having seen this movie, I thought this was a promo <laughs> for the movie. <laughs> It's only like eight years too late. <laughs> a collectible <laughs> item, if you will. Uh, maybe a lead up to a Sinister 3? I don't know. <laughs> There's a 2? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> it is uh, questionable, dubious, I will say, the contents of this box. So hopefully uh, Rick Spencer, the 41-year-old from Grimsby, hopefully he did not pay too much in this auction for this box because i have my my doubts that it's actually from the floorboards of alistair crowley's former home in on the south side of Loch Ness. never knew that <laughs> yeah maybe maybe the spirits at Loch Ness 
changed the contents of the box. You think uh, Alistair Crowley and his Black Magic Rituals ever tried to do anything with the Loch Ness Monster? Of course. Did he put it there? (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure he conjured it, and he couldn't get rid of it, and that's why. Yeah. It it overshadowed him, even. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Everyone knows the Loch Ness Monster. Not everyone knows Alistair Crowley. (laughs) Yep. And that's that's just the way it is, I guess. As for our other story, um, I had flashbacks of our friend John Titer, John Teeter, John Titter. Article also from unexplainedmysteries.com is titled, Physicist Solves Time Travel Paradox Problem. So I'm oh. interest, very interested to get your opinion on this one, Angel. Physics student Jermaine Tobar has come up with the mathematics for what he calls paradox-free time travel. The article reads on, From Doctor Who to Back to the Future, time travel has been a staple science fiction technology in movies, books, and TV shows for years. But could it really be possible to travel into the past? One of the longest standing problems when it comes to time travel is the paradox, a concept that would seem to make the idea of changing events in the past a total impossibility. As an example, imagine traveling into the past to stop a deadly disease. If you succeeded, there wouldn't have been a disease to travel back in time to stop. Hence the paradox. Now, though, physics student Jermaine Tobar from the University of Queensland in Australia believes that he has come up with the mathematics necessary to avoid paradoxes entirely. According to his calculations, space-time is actually capable of adapting itself to avoid them from happening. In the example mentioned above, this could manifest as the disease breaking out regardless of efforts to travel back in time to stop it, thus making it an inevitable occurrence. Classical dynamics says if you know the state of a system at a particular time, this can tell us the entire history of the system, said Tobar. However, Einstein's theory of general relativity predicts the existence of time loops, or time travel, where an event can be both in the past and future of itself, theoretically turning the study of dynamics on its head. Of course, all of this is purely hypothetical. It remains to be seen whether or not time travel is actually possible. And even if it is, it isn't certainly how it would work and whether or not things could be changed. First thing that popped into my head as far as like like time, I guess trying to reconcile itself and make the occurrence happen anyway was like the movie's final destination where like they're trying to just avoid death. Death finds a way to kill them over and over again, whether it's by making a log fall off the back of a truck and impaling you through a car. Time corrects itself. And uh, my other thought was, well, world lines. You just go to a different world line, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what I find interesting is, I, I, I remember hearing about this. And I find it interesting that everyone uh, build it as, you know, this guy solves the paradox problem. But <laughs> yeah. based, based on that explanation that you just read, I've seen that solution to time travel in plenty of tv shows where things will always happen even if they go back in time to change it so i don't see how he's the one that gets the credit for it because he put down some math calculations whatever i I guess (laughs) it it doesn't seem like anything new right (laughs) yeah exactly i didn't didn't read the the final line in, in the article but it says the math checks out, and the results are the stuff of science fiction, says physicist <laughs> Fabio Costa. So Fabio Costa uh, shitting on Jermaine Tobar, I think, here. <laughs> science, results are the stuff of science fiction. I mean, oof, heavy burn I, in the science community there. And I think the uh, 
I think the best time travel movie I've seen, the the, the most modern one, is Arrival. Because it's not, I guess, I mean, it's not really time travel, but it is. Have you seen Arrival? I don't know. <laughs> I've seen so many movies, I forget the titles. <laughs> it's like these aliens that, like, their language is like a circle. The yes, I have seen gets yes. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Life, life finds a way <laughs> in that movie, too. Yeah. But I guess I guess if you put down math, you're considered the <laughs> the cre- credit giving credit for uh-huh. solving problems that probably would never surface to begin with. <laughs> Jermaine Tobar, alias for John Titor. I don't know. Possible. <laughs> the G is silent, or is it? Or is it a J? Oh, oh my God! <laughs> this changes everything. Jeez. Um, but yeah, there we have it. Time paradox is solved. We can go back in time. Uh, but I guess really it doesn't change anything. So what's the point? So General Electric, they can just stop producing that. <laughs> and then that time travel machine. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> I'm to go home, everybody. They said it could not be done. But Angel, we did it. We made it to season two. As you recall, Wendigo ate the flesh of all the season one competitors and reigned supreme. It was all very bloody and violent, to be honest. Going into season two, though, the crown and title of champion has been vacated by the Wendigo, and our ranking slate has been wiped clean. So wipe that chalkboard clean, get the paper towel and some water so that it's not, like, shadowing through. I was using stone tablets. (laughs) You chiseled these the whole time? Oh, no. (laughs) Oops. That was probably harder than putting Link in Beowulf. (laughs) Just one of my many hobbies. (laughs) We'll talk about that one next time, maybe. (laughs) We have an entirely new list of entities to rank, and we shall see who among them can rise above and win the glorious title of champion. We'll also be introducing a separate crown and title of champion for the curio side of the show. In fact, we'll be introducing a curio-specific rubric of power. And I don't know if I could be more excited for a second rubric of power. How about you? Super. (laughs) I mean, I think, I feel like in the future, maybe the two rubrics of power can battle each other. Uh Uh-huh. But I'm I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Which which therefore just on its base level require a third rubric of power (laughs) to judge that battle. Yep. So... Throughout the season, we'll be looking at various objects that reject conventional wisdom and spark the curious side of our brain. Will it devolve into conspiracies perpetrated by the semi-immortal pig entities? Certainly possible, but we'll just have to wait and see how that turns out. As for... Did you hear that, Angel? No. It was really faint. You sure you didn't hear that? No. It sounded to me like the ring-a-jing jingling of sleigh bells (laughs) in the cold winter air. I hope you have your stocking nailed into the mantle of the fireplace, put out some fresh milk and cookies, and have behaved yourself all year long. Because today's entity is none other than jolly old Saint Nick himself, Santa Claus. Santa. He's here. We thought there'd be no better way to kick off the holiday season than to rank Big Red himself and see (laughs) what he brings to the table that is under extreme duress from the weight of all the presents. I don't know about you, but some things I've noticed, Angel, it seems that this time of year on shows that cover subjects like ours, 
but certainly don't listen to those other shows, just ours. <laughs> they uh, they cover, like, the spotlight always goes to that wicked old Krampus. Poor Santa yep. never gets his fair shake. So yep. with that being said, Santa may not be a cryptid, but the stories and aura about him certainly point to some sort of paranormal being. When you think of Santa Claus, Angel, what image of him does this conjure? I think of him sipping on a nice Coca-Cola. It is actually funny you say that. Not a sponsor. <laughs> Keep that on the tip of your tongue for the later section because I found some interesting information about Coca-Cola and Ooh. Santa Claus. And we'll talk about uh, that in the pop culture part of the rubric of power. On my side of it, allow me to get a bit poetic in my description as this comes straight from Clement Clark Moore's or Henry Livingston Jr.'s whichever you believe wrote it, because there's a lot of debate about who wrote this thing, the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas from 1823, more commonly known as The Night Before Christmas. So it's written, He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes how they twinkled, his dimples how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth. The smoke had encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly he was chubby and plump a right jolly old elf i think that does a good job of representing the entity i think we all collectively know as santa would you agree yes <laughs> now repeat it word for word <laughs> okay <laughs> don't do that it was just a test do it in the uh, in the spirit of christmas and for the sake of the ideals of gift giving i got a present for you angel what? Yep. So I want you to close your eyes because I'm not quite set. So close, okay. Close them. Are they closed? Yep. Now open. It's Cotton Eye Joe's razor, the axiom what? that states, for someone to have come from somewhere, they must therefore go somewhere. So where exactly did Santa Claus come from? Now, believe it or not, this is a kind of heated topic in the world of academia that cannot be agreed upon. So in the words of John Titer, John Teeter, John Titter, Angel, get the buckle. <laughs> buckle up because we are heading to theory town. So I have three theories to present to you and we'll discuss them uh, as we go. But the first one I have titled, it was St. Nicholas all along. So one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent theory of where Santa came from, it stems from the real life St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Nicholas of Mira, a.k.a. Nicholas of Berry, a.k.a. Nicholas the Wondermaker. He is the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, prostitutes, children, brewers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people, and students. And pawnbrokers have a patron saint? That's kind of crazy. So, quick <laughs> question, Angel. If you were canonized into sainthood, what would you like to be the patron saint of? Like what profession? I mean... Profession, uh, representation of a certain people's. Patron saint of scab-like dirt on people's faces. <laughs> Just people with dirty scab faces. <laughs> they, they need somebody to represent them, right? Yep. I think I would go 
for a, a very underserved or maybe under celebrated peoples, that of the garbage men. They just don't get enough, you know, they haul garbage all day long, day after day after day. They need a patron saint. And if they don't already have one, I'd like to be canonized into it. <laughs> I can make that happen. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know I, if I want to, because usually canonization comes after you're already dead. And I'm not prepared for I, that yet. <laughs> I can make that happen. <laughs> oh, crap. I know a guy. You know a guy. <laughs> Is that my present? The sweet release? <laughs> Here's your Christianity quiz for the day, Angel. During what centuries was St. Nick alive? Um, the 15th century. Oh, you were really close. You were really, <laughs> really close. So St. Nick goes back to the 3rd and 4th century, so you're just <laughs> off by a few. Born in the great year of 270 in the Greek port city of Patera, which today would be in the uh, country of Turkey. Born into a wealthy family, Nicholas's parents died rather early in his life, and it left him a huge and, and just great deal of money. Seemingly not exactly knowing what to do with it, he just began to share it with others. Oh, how kind. One of the major stories of Nicholas is that, as the story goes, Nicholas heard of a family that had fallen on hard times. A father who had three daughters could not afford a dowry needed for them to get married. So he faced the predicament where the father would have to condemn them to a life of prostitution because they, they, he couldn't afford to have them married. So Nicholas wished to help, but he allegedly did not want to embarrass the man by outright saying he wanted to help him financially. And what I think is a gloriously funny description, Nicholas waited until the cover of night, wrapped up a gold bar, snuck up to the house, and threw the gold through a window and paid the dowry in secret. <laughs> did he like break the window? I'm imagining that there was no glass, I hope, or else that's a real jackass move, Nicholas. Just throw a gold brick. <laughs> here's, here's your money to pay for your window, you filthy bastard. The, uh, the following night, Nicholas returned again, chucking gold through windows and paid the second dowry, and finally returned a third night to toss more gold at the house. So what would you do, Angel, if you woke up one day, your window smashed? Your curtain's on the ground. You pull up the curtains and there's a gold bar lying underneath. What do you do? <laughs> I mean, uh, sell my daughters and then keep the money. <laughs> yep. Just go go forward with the plan. <laughs> Nothing has changed. <laughs> Nothing's changing. <laughs> so I guess the, the idea being that Nicholas wanting to help people, but also aware of the stigma, I suppose, of, of asking for help. He just goes out on his own and, and just does what he thinks needs to be done. He's helping this father that uh, couldn't find help elsewhere, I suppose. Eventually, Nicholas becomes the Bishop of Mira, and then later was arrested during the Great Persecution under Roman Emperor Diocletian. It's a little-known fact about me, Angel. Diocletian is on my list of Roman emperors that I despise, right below Flavius Arcadius and right above Vespasian. So, some some good competition for ones I hate, but he's just right in the middle. Is it because he, he arrested Santa? Well, in my book, he arrested the guy that was throwing gold into people's houses. I mean, you could have killed somebody. <laughs> it's a gold bar. <laughs> no matter how altruistic that is, it's still dangerous, Nicholas. Just place it in there. Don't chuck it in. <laughs> 
Eventually, though, under the rule of Constantine, Nicholas was released and then resumed helping people. So good on Nicholas. His time being persecuted did not stop him. One thing I wanted to share, though, is this next little part because it, it is pretty wild. In medieval times, a story became popularized that Nicholas arrived at an inn whose keeper had just murdered three boys and pickled their dismembered bodies in barrels. Nicholas somehow not only sensed the crime had occurred, but then resurrected the children. So his, like, saint senses must have been tingling. He's like, there have been children murdered. I am their patron saint. I'm coming. And then he resurrects them. So as our resident Santa's helper angel, why doesn't Santa have more necromantic powers? Who says he doesn't? <laughs> why wasn't it pulled into the lore more that Santa could raise the dead of disembodied pickled children? Because only, you know, he's been Christianized. Only one person could do that. Yeah, he's got stiff competition there. So <laughs> <laughs> I found a, a National Geographic article that mentions a, a person by the name of Caroline Wilkinson. She's a facial anthropologist at the University of Manchester, and she used data of x-rays from Nicholas's alleged remains and modern software simulations to create a reconstruction of his face. The face actually was one of a badly broken nose possibly suffered during the persecution of the Christians under Diocletian. Digital artists then added details that were based on some educated guesses of the time, including the olive-toned skin, most common among Greek Mediterraneans, like Nicholas, brown eyes, and gray hair of most likely a 60-year-old man at the time. So what do you think of Mediterranean Santa? Well, Mediterranean Santa is the true Santa, clearly. Does he, like, give out, like, olives? Um, come on, don't be stereotypical here. Gives out fish, fish, right? Fish and figs for fish. all the kids that behaved. You get the olive branch on the back for the ones that disbehaved. <laughs> Over time, however, the image of St. Nicholas started to meld with European deities such as Saturn and Odin, giving him a long white beard. And along the way, he got some magical powers of flight. Protestant Reformation in the 1500s put a damper on venerating saints. So St. Nicholas started to sort of fall out of favor with people, except apparently for the Dutch. With the colonization of America and the settlement of New Amsterdam, the Dutch therefore brought the entity and several hundred years removed from St. Nicholas and then known as Sinterklaas with them. So what do you think of this theory, Angel? Do you think it's a sound theory that this was most likely the, you know, the origins of Santa Claus as we know him today? On the surface level... It seems plausible, but in this world that we live in, there's always two sides to the same coin. The darker side, the sign unseen. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm scared of where that's going to go. <laughs> well, let me bring you the theory two that I found, and this one I call the Black Pete is going to whip you theory. One book that I found along the way during in research is in the book Santa Claus Last of the Wild Men by Phyllis Seifker. And she could not disagree more. She claims that the Dutch who had settled New Amsterdam were Reformation Dutch. And you're always going on about the Reformation Dutch angel, but let me, for our listeners, let them know exactly what's going on with them. They had no use for saints. She cites another author by the name of Charles Jones, who looked at children's books, periodicals, and diaries of the time, and he could find no evidence of Santa or any Santa-like being 
from the time of New Amsterdam to even 100 years after its transformation by the English of the area into New York. She claims Santa has closer origins to the dubious creature known as Black Pete, and were brought here by the Germans to Pennsylvania. So Black Pete, for those of you that do not know, is supposedly a chained demon that St. Nicholas tamed and brought along with him as he visited children, which to me seems like an insanely bad judgment call from St. Nicholas. He's, he's bringing a demon around, kids? <laughs> like, what are you doing? So <laughs> Black Pete had a sack that if children misbehaved, he would toss them in. But eventually, St. Nicholas would, you know, beat the crap out of Black Pete, save the children, everyone would be happy. The ones that were misbehaved that Black Pete took, they would receive sticks or ashes as presents. So, that's a bummer. <laughs> here's some ashes, kid. <laughs> Not only did you go into Black Pete's sack, here's some ashes or a stick. This is clearly tied to our idea that Santa gives coal to bad children, I would think. So, Angel, with the possible imminent death of the coal industry most likely during our lifetime do you think santa will transition out of coal giving um no you don't think so santa first of all santa's magical he could just create coal out of thin air <laughs> but wouldn't <laughs> would he want something more relevant because he's not giving out sticks and ashes anymore right i hope not listen what could be more relevant than coal the 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 diamond life giver <laughs> so he's like here kid you're ha you have an opportunity on your hands put so much pressure yep. on this piece of coal for ages and you could get like a three carat diamond <laughs> good luck he he was trying to teach these kids a lesson yeah. some patience really right <laughs> eventually your coal will become a diamond it might not be in your lifetime yeah. but it will happen maybe possibly if the conditions are right. So <laughs> Phyllis argues that the Black Pete entity is then related to an entity called Pesnickel. And this is a hairy wild man that was tied to old world customs that were brought to America and spread across the region. She outlines a book from Albert Shoemaker called Christmas in Pennsylvania, a folk cultural study, which looked at newspaper articles from the 1800s. He describes, unfortunately, People in blackface going from house to house dressed in animal skins, carrying a whip and a bag. And in the December 19th, 1827 edition of the Philadelphia Gazette, the Pesnickel is described as ebony in face, but topaz in spirit. He's the precursor of the jolly old elf Christkindle or St. Nicholas and makes his personal appearance dressed in skins or old clothes, his face black, a bell, a whip, and a pocket full of cakes or nuts. It is no sooner dark than the Pesnickel's bell is heard flitting from house to house. He slips down the chimney at the fairy hour of midnight and deposits his presence quietly in the prepared stocking. So I had to look one thing up in here, this topaz and spirit, because I didn't understand that terminology of the time would be topaz symbolizing joy and generosity. Pesnickel, not that bad. He's got cakes and nuts in his pockets. He's giving you presents. He does carry a whip, so watch out for that. Also, it goes on to say that he is described as talking in some archaic or mystical tongue, and this is where the whip comes in. He whips kids who tried to pick up the nuts that he threw on the ground. And I don't know, 
I never got a reason as to like why he's tossing the nuts on the ground, but then whipping the kids that are picking up like <laughs> like like bad bad kid. Perhaps he's throwing nuts to see who decides to pick them up to determine if they're demons. Would they have to count the nuts? <laughs> yep, count them. They're counting them. That's the part they got wrong. Mm-hmm. They were actually counting them. And he's whipping them. He's telling, he's telling them to beat the demon out of them. That's why he's speaking in a different tongue. So he's like speaking some sort of abyssal language, seeing if there's demons about. And then he throws the yep. nuts to lure them in and then whip, whip, yep. whip. That's right. Yep. It's like Bob Ross with his paintbrush. Beat the devil out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but with a whip. And he's dressed in furs and it's unfortunately in blackface. So peasantical for you. So what do you think, I guess, of this overall version, Angel? Do you think it's more likely or less likely than the St. Nicholas theory? I mean, it sounds like they're just a amalgamation of all of those, right? Just taking the good parts and throwing out the stuff that nobody's going to want. Yeah, like the whipping. Like, like the no black. one wants... Yeah, yeah, the blackface too. Yeah. Uh, and the whipping. Like no one, <laughs> no one wants some guy to come down their chimney and start whipping you. Like, what the hell is this? Yeah. So it was it was going through some uh, like theory crafting as as he was being envisioned or represented yes. I suppose. I'm a little confused. Was he was he supposed to be a demon or was he the Santa? Like Black Pete was the the, the tamed demon uh, that was on a, an iron leash with with Nicholas. Phyllis's argument is that Black Pete is a another name for this Pesnickel creature. And the Germans in Pennsylvania were the ones that brought Pesnickel to America. And then sort of as, as a, I suppose this form of like ritual during Christmas became more popularized. The idea of Pesnickel spread faster than, and much sooner than the idea of St. Nicholas spreading as the version of Santa that we know of today. So she argues that it was these wild men, old world, entities that is what spawned santa claus and her argument even is that these entities go back at least fifty thousand years and it's just like hardwired into our cultural evolution as a species i mean yeah i can see that Mm -hmm. (laughs) arguments for both sides i guess right yeah yep so i want to read one more description that comes from the Pottstown lafayette aurora in the year 1826 and this caught my eye because it's almost like the, the true cryptid side of Santa Claus. And it goes on to describe Pesnickel as a mischievous hobgoblin that makes his presence known to the people once a year by his cunning tricks of furyism. It's reported that he nearly demolished a poor woman's house in one of the back streets a few nights ago. He has the appearance of a man of 50 and is about four feet high, red round face, curly black hair, with a long beard hanging perpendicular from his chin and his lips finely graced with a pair of horned mustachios, of which a Turk would be proud. He is remarkable thick, being made of Punchian style and is constantly laughing, which occasions his chunky frame to be in perpetual shake. He carries a great budget on his back, filled with all the dainties common to the season. He cracks his nuts amongst his people, as well as his jokes without (laughs) their perceiving him. This genus of the nights, winds, and storms is, when at a distance, entirely a nondescript 
but when he approaches, his uncouth magnitude diminishes, and you can accurately survey his punchian frame from top to toe. His cap, a queer one indeed, is made out of a black bearskin fringed round and rather stuck round with porcupine quills painted a fiery red, and having two folds at each side with which he at pleasure covers his neck and parts of his funny face. His outer garment, like Joseph's of old, is of many colors, hanging straight down from the shoulders to his heels with a tightening belt attached to his waist. The buttons seem to be manufactured entirely in an ancient style out of the shells of hickory nuts. When he runs, the tail of his long coat flies out behind, which gives an opportunity to behold his little short red plush breeches and his brass knee buckles attached to their extremities, the size of a full moon. His moccasins are the same of those worn by Chippewa Nation. He carries a bow with a sheaf of arrows thrown across his, his miscellaneous budget. Thus equipped, he sallies forth in the dark of night with a few tinkling bells attached to his bearskin cap and the tail of his long coat and makes as much noise as mischief through our town. Whew. 1826. <laughs> <laughs> a slightly different take on description. <laughs> we have a four-foot-tall, perpetually jiggling man running through the from house to house. He like somehow demolished, a, nearly demolished a woman's house. I don't know exactly what the deal is with that. I sort of wish they reported more on that part of it. He, pro he probably threw some gold Dude, bricks and through like, the windows. Here's your your present, you <laughs> jerks. <laughs> <Duh>. <laughs> causes an earthquake to bring down the woman's house <laughs> he's like enjoy my cunning tricks now you <laughs> and then he jingles away the peasantical a even with like the multicolored coat like joseph he's, he's all over the place he's yeah. like yeah an amalgamation of <laughs> all the things people like <laughs> but then some of the things they hate like breaking down people's houses <laughs> yeah so Phyllis eventually goes on to argue that this wild man representation of the gift giver is, you know, truly where Santa comes from in the remainder of her books. Any final thoughts on this other more detailed description of Pesnickel or anything, any final thoughts on this theory at all before the final theory that I have? <laughs> no, it, it just, uh, just that they all, you know, I mean, that last description was, I think, a little bit... I think that might have been one of the things that the later people said. We're not going to interpret that at all. Like that's not our Santa. <laughs> we don't have a short, a short man. A half-page description <laughs> on the newspaper of this dude. <laughs> they must have been <laughs> lacking for some material. That just kept going Maybe and going. The, you know, back, back, back in those days, the newspapers didn't know what they were yep. about. <laughs> and the next column over, Spring Hill Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The final theory that I uh, was able to to put together, it's called Tulpa the Morning Theory. So this final theory, it's called, it's the Tulpa Theory. So this stems from a Buddhist concept of Tulpa, which through a process of spiritual or mental focusing, you can cause something to form in reality that necessarily wasn't there before. So the spiritualist Alexandra David Neal, who rose to some notoriety in the early 1920s, was a huge supporter of this concept, not necessarily towards the idea of Santa, but just of Tulpa in general. She says that once the Tulpa is endowed with enough vitality to be capable of playing the part of being real, it tends to free itself 
from its maker's control. She also claimed to have created a topa in the image of a friar tuck-like monk, which later developed a life of its own and then had to be destroyed. So Angel, is this the perfect cover-up for murdering somebody? It's like, oh, that wasn't a person. They were just a manifestation of my focused thoughts. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, who who among us hasn't tried that? <laughs> like, trust me, that's not a real person. It was just my topa. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you get away with it, sometimes you don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> sometimes it works, sometimes you go to jail for life. It's hit, hit or miss. The, the main takeaway from this theory, though, is that Either one singular person or just society as a whole focused on a like agreed upon idea of Santa so much that he was brought from some ethereal plane into our reality. And that's that is the origins of Santa. He is from like a combined focused thought that manifested in reality. With that being said, overall, any one of these three theories really jingle your bells? All of them. They all get the bells I, jingling. Yeah, the I mean the Saint Nicholas uh thing, you know, with the gift giving. And then the the bearded man. Wild man. The, wild man, yeah. And then the last one, it's just like you know, everyone has an idea of who Santa Claus is. So mm-hmm. it's all a thought form. We all share in this mm-hmm. same thought form. So mm-hmm. they all seem to I, I feel like just mash them all together and we have modern santa uh-huh with that being said do you have any other theories to add in to pile on to santa <laughs> the gloves are coming off <laughs> the gloves are coming off i'm afraid for santa <laughs> is he an, a semi-immortal pig person <laughs> no. no okay good. this is let me let me start by saying this is not my theory i did not come up with this but i am and so not only that but i will either intentionally or not intentionally misrepresent some of the facts because I do not subscribe to this theory and I don't want anyone else to think that I subscribe to this. This theory proposes that Santa Claus is actually Satan. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, we we have the, 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 the classic meme of changing the letters around from the word santa and we get satan oh but it could be the fact that santa also known as interclass represents an old pagan deity such such as mithra and odin as you mentioned before mm-hmm. and one named moloch i believe mithra is depicted as wearing a pointed hat just like santa hmm Santa's elves. Curious. <laughs> Santa's elves are known. So we mentioned that he has tra- in the older depictions. He's been known for traveling with a demon, like mm-hmm. Black Pete, but also with demons. And a lot of the cultures in the world still practice this, where the the somebody's dressed up as uh, Santa Claus, kind of looking like the the saint, mm-hmm. like in in you know, angelic robes. And he's surrounded by these weird, uh, these people in costumes that look like demons with horned heads and ugly faces and whatnot. So these demons are known as Krampuses. So it's not just one. Mm-hmm. These, so these are supposed to have evolved to become Santa's elves. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but the Krampuses are supposed to be demons themselves. Here's the thing. They are depicted and described as half goat, half man. That's right. It's the goat man. My God. Goat man. <laughs> goat man. How'd we miss this in the goat man episode? Goat man split apart from Santa at some point. Krampus. And he's changed his name to Goatman. He lives in the States now. That's that's what I'm saying. He doesn't want to be associated with uh, Jolly Old St. Nick anymore. He went his own way. He's like, I'm out. <laughs> Santa, we out. But the idea that Santa is Satan also is uh, listed here in this website. I have several websites open. It's just all this nonsense talk where <laughs> Nick or Old Nick is is a name for the devil and i've never heard that i and i thought that too but then i remembered adam sandler's movie little nicky oh son of a gun (laughs) (laughs) so it's like oh my god it's all coming together (laughs) i I failed my christianity quiz for the day (laughs) (laughs) in fact um in some cultures santa is actually depicted as an elf himself and so, and here's where the, where it gets, it's, I find it interesting when I brought it up earlier, when I said that was Black Pete Santa or was he the demon? Because he was, mm-hmm. uh, the argument being made that Santa being depicted as an elf in the definition for at least these European countries was that an elf was supposed to be some sort of um, evil spirit or mischievous creature. But also in, I think it was German that Satan was Krampus, and Krampus is Santa, so they're all the same being. So in this case, the Krampuses aren't the elves, it's just Satan himself. Mm-hmm. He's depicted, he has been depicted as flying on a magical white goat or a white horse. Dang. I don't take that as you will. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is the argument that made me laugh. This was from a video I saw on YouTube. The guy's argument of why Santa's a bad person is because if you look at all the kids in the malls taking uh, photos of uh, uh, sitting on Santa's lap, they're all crying. Yeah. <laughs> so like, the so, kids know inherently yeah, that it's a bad <laughs> being. Yeah, oh, yeah, no. exactly. The uh, he also tied connection with Baphomet, with um, Santa's reindeer, with the horns. Somehow made My the God. connection. Wow. <laughs> and not only this, but there's a mention of the Second Vatican saying that Saint Nicholas never actually existed. I can't. I couldn't really find any information about that. What's the Second and, Vatican? Is that like uh, like the other Vatican? Um, the the Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gosh. So supposedly they supposedly said that Saint Nicholas never existed, but we do have his artifacts. So wait, is like Saint Nicholas like fake news? Like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he also made the connection to uh, Santa being related to. Puck, as in the trickster spirit, going back to the whole elf thing. Yep, yeah, and that uh, tricky peasantical. <laughs> yep. So there you have it. Santa Satan. The the great <laughs> deceiver deceives again. He 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 steals Christmas from Jesus. <laughs> he he won. Oh, gosh, <laughs> I have never heard that theory ever. Me neither. I, I learned all about it all today. <laughs> 
So there you have it, four separate theories of the origins of Santa. Now that we know possibly where he came from, let's see, where did he go? So regardless of where Santa came from, though, it seems in 1800s America, the Santa that we know today really began to take shape. And various authors and poets began to write about the figure of Santa, and some of the major players were Washington Irving, an 1809 book, Knickerbocker's History of New York. This portrayed a pipe-smoking Nicholas soaring over the rooftops in a flying wagon, delivering presents to children who had behaved themselves. Then poems like The Children's Friend in 1821 began to shed the religious qualities of St. Nicholas, but still attributed the magical gift-giving to him and closer aligned Santa with Christmas. He was still wearing fur overcoats like the Pesnickel, so it was almost like at this point, like you were saying before, Angel, like a hybridization of entities into one. The aforementioned A Visit from St. Nicholas in 1822 really added to the iconic imagery of the chubby, happy, lovable Santa. Then, combined with that, political cartoonist extraordinaire Thomas Nast played a huge role in the representation of Santa, allegedly using the A Visit from St. Nicholas poem as a blueprint for his drawings of Santa, which then spread like wildfire in the later half of the 1800s. Thomas Nast, in general, a huge influence on American culture with his political cartoons. While he didn't, like, create them, things like Uncle Sam, like, that iconography, all Thomas Nast. Transitioning into the 1900s, you have a unified representation of Santa that then lives on to this day. So overall, before we get into the rubric of power, what do you think of our journey of Santa, Angel? Well, just like, uh, you know, we were when we talked, think uh talking about making this episode it was like what are we gonna learn about santa right it's just gonna be you know typical you know saint nicholas kind of stuff and as usual you're gonna be further um, from wrong <laughs> yeah it's, it just uncover all these things that it's just like what <laughs> it's just fascinating yeah the the whole black pete peasantical stuff demons yeah. on chains I never would have ever imagined <laughs> anything like that would have been involved in the origins of Santa, but those things will play into the, the rubric of power. So let's dig in and see how our first entity of season two ends up getting ranked. I'll leave it to you to start, Angel. The powers, we're doing it, the powers of Santa Claus. Oh, man, this is, I feel like this is just, I mean, I feel like our curiosities, our listeners are going to know what we what the rankings are going to be. I mean, this I think it would be an upset if we just said, "Nah, Santa sucks in every possible category." <laughs> I mean, for power, he like he's giving away gifts. Not only is he I mean, I don't where is he getting this amount of wealth to begin <laughs> yeah. with? First of His all. family, if we go on the St. Nicholas <laughs> route, their insane uh wealth that he inherited is must have been mind-boggling cuz it's lasted of uh, <laughs> Uh, it's 1,800 years. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's giving away, not only is he giving away gifts, but he's doing it, especially in modern times, he's doing it all in one night. How? I mean, to be able to do that all around the world <laughs> is insane. And he's got flying reindeer. He's got an army of elves that build his gifts for him. He lives in the North Pole. Nobody lives in the North Pole. Come on. And he, he thrives there. <laughs> and not only that, but he's immortal. The man's never going to die. Yep. <laughs> he gets a straight up four. Yep. I mean, 
I completely agree. And the the immortality, I specifically found a story. It's in L. Frank Baum's Life and Adventures of Santa. It's a book from 1902 that gives us a biography of sorts of Santa Claus. And being found as a baby in the forest by the master woodsman Ack, and then raised by the a fairy, Niesel, Santa lived, you know, a life of selflessness and gift giving. So near the end of his life, at around the age of 60, his health was waning. And Ack and the other immortals of the world set together this council and gifted the mantle of immortality to Santa. And it's described My in the God. yeah, it's described in the book that only one non-immortal, like only one human being in existence could ever be given this mantle. And they gave it to Santa Claus. Jeez. So, I mean, he he's the and, immortals sing the praise of Santa. <laughs> and who are we to argue with Frank Elbaum? Yep. I'm not going to argue with Ack, the master woodsman. <laughs> uh, other things that I saw that he can seemingly just reshape his body to fit through anything. <laughs> like, he... he, he I don't know how he does it, but he has the ability to just fit through the tiniest of holes. He's like like a cat. If his head can fit through the hole, the rest of his body follows through. He has the ability to know that a person, how the person has acted throughout their lives and isn't afraid to judge you because of how you acted. So he just knows inherently if you're like a bad or good person. One thing that I saw, and this was only one single source, but it claimed that upon Christmas Eve, Santa's strength becomes augmented and allows him to lift at least two tons. What? Santa's Santa's bench and mega weight here. Two tons oh of weight he can carry on Christmas Eve. Only on Christmas Eve? Yep, it's just the one. It was specific to that. It's augmented only on Christmas Eve so that he can lift two tons. And then you mentioned it. He gets around the world in a single night. And I seem to recall a little movie where Jackie Chan wasn't even able to do it in 80 days. So he beats Jackie Chan. He controls reindeer. He has minions. Um, he's also able to control the weather in the form that he can make it snow whenever he wants it to. And he's just attributed overall to just a powerful, magical presence. One final thing, and it's a semi-joke, but also a serious topic of discussion that I thought, that Santa must have a reinforced steel bladder because he goes across america and think of all the milk that he drinks going from house to house there is no time for him to urinate the clock is ticking the night is waning he's like an amazon warehouse worker no time for bathroom breaks <laughs> so i give I mean, him i give him a four <laughs> I mean, like, if, he's, if he's if he's immortal does does he really need to deal with the uh our daily uh... <laughs> activities of <laughs> mundane activities of uh, yeah. waste removal. <laughs> I, I don't know. I would assume so. And and if we're to believe certain films, Santa is like the Mothman. He just oh, transfer no. his essence yeah, to can, Tim Allen. Yeah. Hey, there's a contract involved. There's, I mean, is there not a better named movie than the Santa Claus? I mean, come on. How did no one ever think of that prior to that trilogy of movies? It is mind-boggling. That was never made before. So we have fours going in strong on power. How about detectability of Santa Claus? Now, detectability. 
You know how I feel about this. <laughs> I, I don't know about this one. I'm interested. Well, just to reiterate, if we're talking about the thing, yep. that means it can never have a four because that means we, we've heard of it or somebody spotted it at some point in their life. Even if they made it up, the fact that it is being talked about means it's been spotted once. Now, for in this situation, it's a little different reasoning. You know, we're, we have origins going back to a, a real person like uh, St. Nicholas. That means people have seen him. Mm-hmm. He did exist, right? But as time went on, he has become this, you know, this mythical being. And can people claim they have seen him recently? Right? Yeah. The thing is, what makes it worse is then we have mall Santas. You know, people that dress up as Santa. Yeah, a bunch of doppelgangers <laughs> posing yeah, so, as him. So even if the real Santa were among them, we would never be able to tell. So I gave the detectability a three. A three? Okay. Yeah. For me, here's the thing with Santa. We know he's coming. We leave cookies and milk out for the man to fuel his gift-giving frenzy. We don't mind that he's sneaking into our house while we sleep. Yet the only evidence that we often have are cookie crumbs and a half-drunken glass of milk. It's very rare, is it, for someone to catch him in the act of placing a present or seeing him leave the house. But by the, the mere ritual of preparing for his arrival, we acknowledge his existence. We end up knowing he came because we have gifts under the tree that bear his name. It's a tricky one. So as like... He's not seemingly trying to hide from us, and we even know where he lives. Like, he lives in the North Pole, and you can mail him letters. So he has, therefore, a physical address. That, like, he's easier to find than the Baba Yaga, which is random people. Like, oh, he's, she's down the street in the woods. Like, yeah. you can, at this point, also track his trajectory across the world as he's delivering on Christmas Eve. That's insane. Like... <laughs> By the sheer definition of detectability, like you can see him moving, but it's a hard one for me because I was like, at first I was thinking like a four, just because he's like, the reasoning that we we know he exists, but there's not evidence of seeing him enough. No, not like the like the, the physical evidence of it besides some things that are out there. But then I was like, on the other side of it, we know he's coming so we prepare for him like (laughs) we're inviting him into our house so then i ended up going in the middle a little bit and i gave him a 2.5 not bad Mm -hmm. so how about the lore of santa claus (laughs) once again i mean you have all these tales of his origins and and different uh cultures have a i guess their own version of of a santa and even if uh, we're including the you know man that's whipping kids, <laughs> yeah, don't pick up those nuts, whip. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then not only that, but then we have the modern Santa. I mean, I showed you a picture earlier. I have two little tiny books. One's a poem, uh, uh, like a Christmas poem, and another one's just talking about Santa and how good he is, and he visits all the cultures in the world, and he's like smoking a pipe with one of them. It's, it's <laughs> Riding in the canoe down the river. (laughs) I don't know when he has time to do that. Come on, Santa. You got houses to get to. Yeah. And and there's tons and tons of Christmas movies. 
Not to mention movies about Santa or feature or including Santa in some shape or form. TV shows that will have a Christmas episode where Santa shows up and it's like, it was the real Santa after yep. all. I mean, <laughs> every single sitcom of the 90s, I think that occurred. Yep. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't even, I don't. It's weird. I can't even think. Of, I can't think of an instance where video games feature Santa Claus, but I'm sure it's he's in there somewhere. It's just it's, again a four. He gets a four there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, for me, it just uh, there's just so much out there. It's mind-boggling, and for me, that just shows how much the entity is beloved. I looked at so many different stories in preparation for this episode, and I can't particularly remember exactly exactly where this came from. I think it might be Life and Adventures of Santa. But there was a point where he, where houses began to get stoves and then therefore no longer needed a chimney. So Santa arrives one year at a house and it just has this little tiny shaft at the top of the house that he can get down. He's like, huh, that's weird. And he goes down the shaft anyways, eventually not being able to find a way out. So he goes back up the shaft and is back up on the roof. He's like, what the hell is going on here? And he's ends up still getting inside the house because he can find other ways in but he's like looks around the house there's no chimney he's like what the hell is going on here there's no chimney in this house Who the? <laughs> he's like getting left behind in technology but he goes to the next house and it's the same thing they have a stove rather than a chimney so he can't get down it in his normal means he goes to the next house and it's the same thing so it, it establishes a lore in my mind where santa hates stoves because it removes <laughs> The necessity of having a fireplace. The lore goes that deep. I give it a four. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's there is no way that he gets anything less than a four. Yeah. In in any world line <laughs> out there, he gets a four in every one of those world lines. Santa's the same in every world <laughs> you know? line. I mean, it, it can't can't get any less powerful than this. How about the Never cunning changing. cunning and intelligence? Is he human now that he's immortal? Is it, does that transition his thought process? How about, how, where were you uh, for this? So, th- yeah, I thought about this one too. And I thought it was interesting because, like you said, yeah, a human gets straight up four. But if he becomes immortal... Is that, tr- it, is that transcendent it, than human? I was going to say, does that make he transcends? <laughs> but I still thought, like, well... I mean, when it comes to cunning and intelligence, like, what are we measuring here exactly in terms of Santa Claus? Like, what exact? why would Santa need to be cunning? Maybe to not be seen? I mm-hmm. don't know. Um, intelligence is plotting the path yeah, to like all the, the houses. The route around the world to get yeah, everything yeah. in time. Yeah. But... My thing is, he only does this for one night in, of the entire oh, no. year. What's he doing those rest of the days? Hey, he is preparing. There is a lot to prepare for. It's stressful. Well, whether or not, you know, it's stressful or not. And I don't know why I'm I... defending him in your argument. <laughs> I mean, feel free to defend. I don't care. But I'm just saying that if, you know... The fact that he's he has all these other days of the year where he's not doing anything, I had to lower his score. Whoa. Yep. Because of his I laziness. 
I gave him a 3.5. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only he worked two days out of the year, maybe it would have been a four. (laughs) So uh, for me, Santa, he is an altruistic powerhouse. He breaks into your house and rather than steal, he gives you things. He can find any way into your house and he just intrinsically knows if you have been bad or good. So he like (laughs) somehow can cognitively understand the entire world's population's behavior. So for me, I I mean, I give him a four. Our final segment of the rubric of power. I mean, I know if we have to do it, but impact on popular culture that Santa has had. Negative five. Oh, no. Because <laughs> he's Satan. Because <laughs> he's the, the great betrayer. Um, I mean, I don't need to explain it. He got a four. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that I just thought of that is it's probably a completely baseless claim, but I, I'm still confident in saying it. I believe Santa Claus is the most recognizable face in America. I think for a while, I think like I just randomly remember like Mickey Mouse either being like the most recognizable face or name. I, I think Santa Claus is just the most recognizable symbol in America. And you would be hard-pressed to find a person out there that does not know who Santa Claus is. Whoever Santa's agent is, bravo, because his merchandising game is on point. In fact, (laughs) I'm mentioning it before, the Coca-Cola thing. At one point, there's actually people that believed that Santa Claus was a creation of Coca-Cola because he was so closely tied to their brand. So they just thought it was like, like, yeah, Coca-Cola generated the, the image of santa claus but that's yeah not the case at all and then i know everyone's been waiting it's we've we've had a bit of a break john titer had to ruin it by not having <laughs> a beer named after him so let's let's get right to it santa beers and i mean come on saint nick is the patron saint of brewers so where are we going with this it would be a crime against humanity if there weren't santa beers but with that being said i found something interesting with ohio that it is actually illegal to advertise beers with imagery of Santa in Ohio. In fact, in the 1980s, for Budweiser had this issue. It was a real issue that they had because they had an ad campaign with Spuds McKenzie, their dog. He was dressed in a Santa cap and a coat and mittens, and they were like, Budweiser, get this crap out of here. We're not selling it here. <laughs> but I think eventually they still ended up selling it. Nobody pulled it from the shelves. Uh, the article I read from the 80s wasn't exactly clear on that part of it, but yeah, apparently you can't sell imagery of Santa Claus on beers in Ohio. For the rest of the world, uh, America, though, um, there's like a bajillion of them, and there's just too many to even cover. The, more, a million more than Wendigo even had. Jeez. One that did catch my eye, it's from Hailstorm Brewing Company. It's called Santa's Cookies and Milk Stout, and it's mirrored after the Samoa Girl Scout cookie and uh, brings beer drinkers the familiar flavors of coconuts, vanilla, and a bit of chocolate. So uh, that sounded cool. Gosh, Santa Claus, impact on pop culture, four. Can't, cannot get any lower than that. With that being said, what's what's your grand total in the points for Santa Claus? I mean, I'm at an 18 and a half. Oh my God, I have an 18.5. <laughs> So, 18.5. So, 
with our combined scores of 18.5. We don't even need the algorithm to figure this one out for us. <laughs> out of 20 points possible, Santa Claus getting a 18.5. <laughs> Episode 1, Season 2. Oh, there's some tough competition coming. There, there better be, or else Santa's going to walk away with this. No problem. But the, I mean... I feel like this is going to be our trend. We always start off the first episode with our top winner. <laughs> so maybe, you know, second to last, we'll there's find somebody there's gonna that topples be a, in. A dark horse that can beat Santa Claus? <laughs> Did, do you know what this means? I don't know. <laughs> I, I honestly don't think there's anything out there that can topple Santa Claus right now. He is living high. We're going into his season. I mean, it's it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough out there. So any last thoughts, well wishes for Santa before we put out the milk and cookies and hope he doesn't break the tree? It was it, it has been a journey to get to know the real, <laughs> the true Santa. And I'm actually as a side hobby because I'm to add to my many hobbies, mm-hmm. I'm going to be studying a little bit more on on his uh, Krampus creatures, just to to maybe familiarize myself more with that uh, mm-hmm. side of things. Uh, interesting entities that are tied to his origins, and even just like the elves in general, like the yeah the Adventures of Santa Claus book. Like at the end of it, after he has been given the mantle of immortality, it's described in that book that like. Santa just ends up needing more help. He like deputizes a bunch of elves to uh to work with them, and they're the elves that follow him to the to the North Pole to help make toys. So, so that that's the origins of the, his elves. Yeah, there are other like <laughs> the fae creatures from the from the woods that he grew up in, oh. and uh, uh, since he was given that mantle of immortality, they're like, we got to we got to help this dude. He's the best of the best. There's no better than Santa Claus. <laughs> so I think overall for me, uh, Santa, it was a neat thing to delve into the, uh, you know, the origins of it. It's things that I never really thought of, uh, I guess, on, on my side of it. Like just growing up, I, f- I feel like I saw a cartoonized version of the Adventures of Santa Claus storybook. And I just have like faint memories of him like growing up with this fairy. But I don't know if that was are these are real memories or not it's maybe it's from a different <laughs> world line i don't know but uh i distinctly remember it and i don't know like on top of that like anyone in their mid-30s like us that doesn't know like the claymation like rudolph movies like there are certain yeah. things that like you see them and it, it strikes that nostalgia uh, chord with you yeah. and you know a neat entity a very magical entity. I think one of the most special things of our culture being Santa Claus. It's just a cool thing, a cool entity, a cool man that has a lot of just stories and like mythology about him. Yeah. Next time we'll talk about Mrs. Claus. (laughs) Oh no. Is she going to be stronger? (laughs) Maybe she's the dark horse. (laughs) I'll save her for the end of the season to swoop in. Santa's not expecting it. He's already going to be, uh, by that time, Christmas will be over. He won't be working as hard. Yep. And he's not going to be paying attention. Someone's going <laughs> to He's going to let his guard yeah. down. 
during our hiatus, I had an, an, an anonymous informant submit a sighting of something that's never before been seen. Oh, this is intriguing. Apparently, he lives in a dungeon or a cave of some sorts. It's a humanoid <laughs> It's a humanoid creature. But it's not like a Bigfoot. It, 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 I was from what I read, it was a human, but he he was grimy. He had like dirt, like kind of like a primitive caveman type. He speaks in in broken words apparently. I guess he he spoke to him. It's strange. And he has a strange laugh is what I was told. So that's like his his like um like Bigfoot with like the hoots in the woods and the the <laughs> hollers in the woods. This entity is well that's creepy. Like a, a laughing in the distance. Yeah. It's like maybe maybe you know I, I feel like we should keep talking about this every episode mm-hmm. and I'll find some more evidence probably, hopefully. For this creature, <laughs> can you imagine like being out there, like near a cave, and like inside the cave you hear like, uh, did they say what the laugh was like? It says like a broken laugh, like a ah, 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 kind of high pitched like that. I, I think I would leave. I would leave the area if I heard that in a cave. I'm like, uh, I don't want any part of this. It reminds me of like in the in the game Left for Dead, like when the witch yeah. starts crying. It's like, nope, I'm out of here. When you hear that laugh, <laughs> nope, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see what comes up this this thing. Did yeah, so hopefully there's more interactions and 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 story to share. I think there is cuz my gosh, yeah, I'm we'll have to look more into this because if there's a, a a something new out there, is this is this your detectability for maybe I mean, if <laughs> I mean, it could be because we could be talking about nothing in particular, and we could be wrong. <laughs> could have been a homeless man going crazy in a cave. You never yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, right now it's just like okay, you saw. It sounds like you just found found another person, but the, we'll see. The uh, first thing that came to mind was in the skunk ape episode. The Vietnamese guy that um, who too may you know, that would kill. Armadillos with his pipe. That's the first thing I thought of. Maybe we'll find out that he eats our armadillos too. I don't know. And this uh should clarify was also in Florida. So mm-hmm. I don't yep. know. We'll see. I I'm gonna do some correspondence with this uh anonymous emailer and see if I can get more info. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we'll explore more next episode and a interesting episode in the making because it is our first foray into the curio side of it basically the structure of the season going forward there'll be a entity so we covered santa episode one the next episode would be a curio episode and then switch back to a cryptid episode and then so forth and so forth so it's gonna be a little flip-flopping throughout season two see how it goes so in episode two we will be covering a handful of cursed paintings that have come to light throughout history and seeing what their impact and just overall story of these cursed paintings are. And as far as the rubric of power, the specific curio rubric of power is going to be consist of lore, properties of the item, the functionality and purpose of the item, craftsmanship, and desirability. 
So we'll see how those things rank in these cursed paintings. And as always, be sure to hit us up on our social media. We got at Cracking Curios on Twitter. You can write to us any questions. Hashtag Crack Cryptids. And also, we got a new Instagram. At cracking, <laughs> at cracking Cryptids. So make sure to follow us on Instagram as well. We'll be posting uh, on there regularly. Hopefully we uh, trying to get some behind-the-scenes pictures getting put up. So you can see us in action kind of thing. <laughs> and on the Twitter side of things, just recently found out Carl Shooker is on Twitter. So that was a uh, mind-blowing moment. The, the man, the myth, the legend himself, Carl Shooker. So we'll see if he tweets out anything to give us some ideas on um, entities or if he clarifies any statements on the Mongolian death worm mysterious luncheon that he had <laughs> with uh, <laughs> whoever he gave those papers to, I don't recall. <laughs> yeah. If you want to send him any questions, you can go ahead and send them at, at Carl Shooker. Santa Claus, get the buckle. <laughs> he already has a big belt buckle. This has been an I am actually traveling back into time production. This is my sad song. <laughs>